ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Today then we start with a new hadith. Al-Imam al-Bukhari says, حدثنا يحيى ابن قزعة قال حدثنا إبراهيم عن ابن شهاب عن أبي سلمة والعرج قال وحدثنا إسماعيل قال حدثني أخي عن سليمان عن محمد بن بعتيق عن ابن شهاب عن أبي سلمة بن عبد الرحمن وسعيد بن المصيب أن أبا هريرة قال استب رجل من المسلمين ورجل من اليهود فقال المسلم والذي اصطفى محمدا على العالمين في قسم يقسم به فقال اليهودي والذي اصطفى موسى على العالمين فرفع المسلم يده عند ذلك فلطم اليهودي فذهب اليهودي إلى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فأخبره بالذي كان من أمره وأمر المسلم فقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لا تخيروني على موسى فإن الناس يصعقون يوم القيامة فأكون أول من يفيق فإذا موسى باطش بجانب العرش فلا أدري أكان في من صعق فأفاق قبلي أو كان ممن استثنى الله In this narration Abu Huraira mentions So in this narration then, Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu mentions that there was a man from the Muslims and a man from the Jews and they quarreled. They were quarreling. So the Jew said, by the one who chose Musa upon all of the people. Or firstly, no, the man from the Jews, the Muslim said first. The Muslim said, by the one whom chose Muhammad over all of the people, 
Then the Jew said, by the one who chose Musa over all of the people. So the Muslim, upon hearing that, raised his hand and struck the Jew. So then the Jew went to the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and told him what happened between him and the Muslim. So the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, do not give me superiority over Musa. For indeed, the people are going to fall unconscious on the day of judgment, and I will be the first to regain consciousness. But I will see that Musa is standing at the side of the throne, and I don't know, was he from amongst those who also fell unconscious, but then regained consciousness before me? Or was he exempted by Allah? from falling unconscious in the first place. So that is the narration you have here. There was a Jewish man and a Muslim man, and they were quarreling. So one of them, well, the Muslim man, mentioned that Allah has given the Prophet Muhammad superiority. The Jew said, Musa has been given the superiority. So the Muslim man raised his hand and struck the Jewish man. Then the Jewish man came to the Prophet and told him what happened. And the Prophet said, don't speak of superiority for me over Musa. For indeed on that day, the people are going to fall unconscious and I will be the first to regain consciousness. But I will see that Musa is already standing at the side of the throne. So I don't know whether he regained consciousness before me or whether he was exempt. Allah gave him exemption from falling unconscious in the first place. The point of this narration is what? Since we're talking about the chapter regarding the Mashiach of Allah. Where is that demonstrated or highlighted in this particular narration? The Mashiach of Allah. Possibly. So the will of Allah, where is the point regarding the Mashiach of Allah? So the fact that Musa salam may have been exempt by, of course, the Mashiach of Allah. فَالشَّاهِدْ قَوْلُهُ أَوْ كَانَ مِمَّنْ إِسْتَثْنَ اللَّهِ That maybe he was from those, Musa salam who were given exemption by Allah. And if Musa salam was given exemption from the rest of the people, then that is by the will of Allah that he was exempt and the others were not. There are other ayat that talk about this particular incident on the day of judgment when the horn is blown. When the horn is blown, initially everybody falls unconscious. Then when the horn is blown again, everybody is resurrected. Correct? Not correct? Then what's correct? 
is a global conflict. There is a difference of opinion, as we've mentioned before in previous classes, regarding how many times the horn will be blown. Some of the scholars, they say, <clears throat> not the horn, when it's blown initially by Israfil, the angel, the initial time when it's blown, that will cause the fear and the terror into the people and they will fall unconscious. The second time when it's blown, they'll be resurrected, the resurrection. Others, they say, there will be three times it's blown. The first time it's blown causes the terror and the fright. The second time it's blown causes everyone to fall unconscious. The third time it's blown, everybody is resurrected. So here, it's talking about when they fall unconscious and then everybody is resurrected, that the Prophet Muhammad will be the first to be raised, but he will notice Musa already conscious, standing by the throne, holding from the throne. So then he says, I don't know, was Musa also unconscious, but he regained consciousness before me? Or was he never unconscious in the first place? Was he, by the will of Allah, exempt from falling unconscious? وَفِي هَذَا دَلِيلٌ عَلَى تَوَاضُعِ النَّبِيِّ صلى الله عليه وسلم حيث قال لا تخيروني على موسى It shows in this hadith also the humbleness of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم because he said to them, don't speak of me as superior to Musa salam. Even though we know that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is superior to Musa salam, But from the humbleness of the Prophet sallallahu he said, don't say that I am superior to Musa salam. كما قال أيضا لا ينبغي لعبد أن يقول أنا خير من يونس بن متى. In another narration it mentions that he وسلم, said it is not befitting or appropriate for any servant to say that I am superior or better than Yunus ibn Matta. And that again is from his humbleness to say that. ومعنا لا تخيروني أي لا تقولوا هو خير من كذا وهذا من التواضع وإلا فلا شك أن الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم هو خير الأنبياء There is no doubt of course that the Prophet Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم is the most superior prophet and messenger from everyone There is no doubt about that The best five messengers we've mentioned many a time before the best of all of the messengers is, of course, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, because he is Kalimullah, the one whom Allah spoke to directly, and also Khalilullah, the most beloved, the khullah, the highest level of love. Then the second best messenger is 
Ibrahim السلام, because he has one of those two characteristics only. He is Khalilullah. Then after that is Musa السلام, because he only has one of the two characteristics. The other one, he is Kalimullah, the one whom Allah spoke to directly. And then after that, fourth and fifth, Nuh and Isa upon the difference who is fourth and who is fifth. So there is no doubt about Muhammad being the superior. However, from his humbleness, he makes this statement, don't say I'm superior to Musa in the other narration to Yunus The application of it then does it mean it's not allowed to say that Muhammad is superior to the other prophets and messengers or to Musa etc. We know that is the case. We know that is the case. So it is not a statement that is haram, but it's simply a statement where the Prophet is saying, you don't say it without any requirement to say it. For example, now when we're explaining about the prophets and messengers, we have to explain and say what we've just said, that the best of the messengers is Muhammad and he is superior to Ibrahim and Musa in that regard. In that context, you have to. But in generally just saying it, it was from the statement of the Prophet ﷺ that you don't make those comments purely from his humbleness. So it's one thing not saying something out of humbleness. It's another thing saying it's impermissible to say something. So it's not impermissible, it's a fact. But out of humbleness of the Prophet ﷺ, it's not something that is mentioned as such. But we know other narrations when the Prophet ﷺ said, if Musa السلام, was alive now, ma wasi'ahu illa an, it would not be, he would have no choice. If Musa السلام, was alive right now, he would have no choice but to follow my sunnah. And the same with Isa السلام, when he comes at the end of time, he has to follow the sunnah of the Prophet. السلام. So, in that regard, it's a fact. But this is simply a statement of the Prophet ﷺ out of his humbleness that you should not make those comments from humbleness point of view only. Factually, we know it's the case. Correct. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned that I am the best of the children of Adam, uh, best of all of the creation we know from all of the Prophets and Messengers. And there is a wording in that narration, wala fakhr, without boasting, without boasting and without any pride in that. But this is the fact that Allah has chosen the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, as the superior and the final messenger. Then, after that, Al Imam al Bukhari says, 
قال حدثنا إسحاق بن أبي عيسى قال أخبرنا يزيد بن هارون قال أخبرنا شعبة عن قتاده عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم المدينة يأتيها الدجال فيجد الملائكة يحرصونها فلا يقربها الدجال ولا الطاعون إن شاء الله In this narration of Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that the Dajjal will come upon Medina at the end of time when the Dajjal comes and he will tread upon all of the lands he comes to Medina and he finds at the gates of Medina that there are angels guarding it so he cannot come close the Dajjal cannot come close and neither Atta'oon what is Atta'oon? plague so neither the Dajjal and nor the plague the point of this narration is clear the Dajjal will not come close, nor the plague, insha'Allah. وَفِي هَذَا بُشْرَى لِأَهْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ So in this narration is a clear glad tidings for the people of Medina, that the Dajjal will not be able to enter into Medina. And similarly, the plague will not occur upon Medina. لكن ولكن قول الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم إن شاء الله يحتمل أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قاله تبركا وتحقيقا What does إن شاء الله mean at the end of this narration? What does it actually mean? Does it mean the Dajjal and the plague won't come into Medina, insha'Allah, meaning that we don't know, maybe it could, maybe it couldn't, but insha'Allah they won't. Or does it indicate that the Prophet ﷺ is making that comment, insha'Allah, at the end, purely from a factual point of view, as we said, you can say insha'Allah on factual statements, like in the narration about when you visit the deceased at the graveyard, that you say, we are going to meet with you, insha'Allah. And you know for definite, you are going to die and go to where they are too. So is it from that angle, it's a fact, but insha'Allah is being said, in terms of the recognition of the blessing of Allah, that Allah will decree this to occur, Allah will will this to occur, and the Dajjal and the plague won't enter. Which of the two is it? <clears throat> so the Shaykh says, Insha'Allah, Yahtamil anna nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qalahu tabarrukan wa tahqiqan wa yahtamil annahum qalahu taraddudan wa ta'liqan wa annahu yunkin an yatiha ta'un amma al-dajjal faqad jaa fi ahadith kathira bidun istithna annahu la yadkhuluha walakin la ya'ni thalika anna kulla man fiha yaslam min fitnatih so, it could either mean 
It's a factual statement and insha'Allah is only being added on at the end to indicate the barakah of it and that Allah is going to will this so Dajjal isn't going to enter and plague isn't going to occur. Or it could mean maybe insha'Allah we hope Dajjal won't enter and plague won't occur. However, in terms of the Dajjal not entering, there are multiple narrations where this issue doesn't even exist because it is mentioned factually without insha'Allah at the end. So we know as a fact, definitely Dajjal will not enter Medina. With the plague, potentially, there is a possibility it could mean that plague will never enter Medina, insha'Allah. That hopefully, we hope, and we hope that Allah wills, insha'Allah, that the plague won't enter. But maybe, for the plague, that's a possibility. And it could be the possibility, the other one, that it's also a factual statement, and the plague will also never enter Medina. However, the Shaykh mentions, just because the Dajjal will not enter Medina, then it doesn't necessitate that all of the people of Medina will be absolutely guarded from the fitna of the Dajjal. Just because the Dajjal cannot enter Medina does not necessitate that all of the residents of Medina are absolutely shielded from the fitna of the Dajjal. لِأَنَّ الْمَدِينَ حِينَ إِذَنْ تَرْجُ فَثَلَاثَ رَجَفَاتٍ فَيَخْرُجُ مِنْهَا مَنْ كَانَ مُنَافِقًا أَوْ كَافِرًا أَوْ مَا شَبَهَ ذَلِكَ Because at that time it's mentioned there will be three quakings, three tremors that will occur, shakings of the earth, of the ground of Medina. And as a consequence of that shaking of Medina at the time, certain individuals will be expelled with that shaking. The munafiqun will be expelled with that shaking of Medina. The mushrikun will be expelled with that shaking of Medina. And ma ashbaha thalika, those similar to them. So, people will be impacted in Medina. It does not indicate all of the residents of Medina will be sound. The munafiqun, residents of Medina, but they are going to be expelled in the shaking of it. Mushrikun residents may, will be expelled from the shaking of it. So those munafiqun who are there, or disbelievers who happen to be there, then they will all be expelled. It is therefore not an absolute safety for anybody inside of Medina at the time. A few other points. Al-Qadhi Iyad, he mentioned fi hadhihi al-ahadith hujjah li ahli sunnah fi sihhati wujud al-dajjal. In these narrations there is a proof uh, establishing the existence of dajjal. In another narration it mentions in the Ahmed, in the Musnad of Al-Ahmed, of uh, Al-Imam Ahmed, and uh, the Mustadrak of Al-Hakim, 
And how do we know it is the Musnad of Imam Ahmad and the Mustadrak of Al-Hakim, even though they've only just said, Inda Ahmad Wal-Hakim. That's the default with them. In that narration it mentions, وَلَا يَدْخُلُهَا الدَّجَّالُ Allah. Dajjal will not enter Medina, insha'Allah. Kullama arada duhulaha talaqahu bikulli niqbin min anqabiha malakun musallatun sayfuhu yamna'ahu anha. That every time he tries to enter, he will come across those angels with their swords drawn, preventing him. So these narrations highlight the existence and the uh, establishment of the Dajjal being real and mentioned in the narrations, and there are multiple narrations of it. Then after that, قال حدثنا أبو اليمان قال أخبرنا شعيب عن الزهري قال حدثني أبو سلمة ابن عبد الرحمن أن أبا هريرة قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لكل نبي دعوة فأريد إن شاء الله أن أختبي دعوتي شفاعة لأمتي يوم القيامة That every prophet has an answered dua What did they say that? Every prophet has an answered invocation, one invocation, one dua. So the Prophet says, I want to keep my dua, insha'Allah, as the intercession for my ummah on the day of judgment. That's what I want to keep that dua, that invocation for, for the shafa'a for my ummah on the day of judgment. Again, you can see clearly, فَأُرِيدُ I want to, insha'Allah, have that dua, keep that dua for the intercession of my ummah on the day of judgment. So again, the affirmation mentioned there, insha'Allah. A few side points, the shaykh says, there are many narrations that highlight that the Prophet had many duas that were answered for him. Yet this narration says every messenger or every prophet has one invocation, one dua that is answered for them. And that I'm going to keep mine as the shafa'ah, the intercession for my ummah on the day of judgment. But we know the Prophet had multiple, so many invocations that were answered for him. So how do you combine between that? Is there a contradiction there? The shaykh says no contradiction. لكن هذه دعوة أخبر بها أنه سيستجاب لها أما الدعوات الأخرى فهو يدعو ولكنه لم يضمن له الإجابة فكل الناس يدعون يستجاب لهم حتى من دون الأنبياء This one invocation it is guaranteed to be answered The other invocations it was not the same way it wasn't guaranteed in advance that they were all going to be answered even though we now know that there were multiple invocations in different narrations that were answered. The example of the rain prayer, when the Prophet ﷺ was giving a khutbah one time, he was on the mimbar, 
on the member giving a khutbah on Friday, a Bedouin, a Bedouin walked in. A Bedouin walked into the masjid and he began talking to the Prophet ﷺ there and then. And the Prophet ﷺ was standing up giving a khutbah. He walked in and started talking to the Prophet ﷺ. Is that allowed? So no, well, there you go. So, huh? so normally, of course, we know the rule. There is no talking. You cannot talk. However, in necessity, it is permissible. In necessity or a need, it is permissible to address or to speak to the khatib, etc. And the khatib can talk to the people. So on this occasion, there was a dire necessity. That dire necessity was a drought. There was a drought, no rain. There was no rain for a long time. And so the people were struggling without water. And the animals, the, the livestock, they were struggling. A, a severe drought occurring. So the man came in asking the Prophet ﷺ about that, telling him, complaining what's going on, and the difficulty for the people, for the animals, saying, make dua. So the Prophet ﷺ in that khutbah made the dua for the rain. So they say, they finished the Jum'ah and as they were walking out, there and then the clouds, huge clouds came and the rain started pouring down. So the dua was clearly answered straight away to the extent it rained for a whole week, they didn't see the sun. So then next week the khutbah was going on, the man came back again and he began to say, this time, O Messenger of Allah, there is so much rain coming, it's destroying our crops. Having difficulty for the livestock, make the dua that the rain goes out to the sides of the village, into the valleys, into the sides, not pouring down onto our lands and agriculture, animals, everything, struggling so much rain now. So then the dua was made and the rain was taken away to the valleys and to the sides. But there are multiple examples like that. The point being all of those, there was no mention of a guaranteed answer on them. With this one supplication, it is mentioned in advance that it is a guaranteed answer. After that, قال البخاري رحمه الله حدثنا يسارة يسارة بن صفوان ابن جميل اللخمي قال حدثنا إبراهيم بن سعد عن الزهري عن سعيد بن المصيب عن أبي هريرة قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم بين أنا نائم رأيتني على قليب فنزعت ما شاء الله أن أنزع ثم أخذها ابن أبي قحافة فنزع ذنوبا أو ذنوبين وفي نزعه ضعف والله يغفر له ثم أخذها عمر فاستحالت غربا فلم أرى عبقريا من الناس يفري فرية حتى ضرب الناس حوله بعطن
while I was speaking, I saw myself in a dream standing by a well. I drew from it as much water as Allah wished me to draw. <coughs> and then Ibn Fu'afa Abu Bakr stood and took the bucket from me and drew one or two buckets. And there was sweetness in his drawing. May Allah forgive him. Then Umar took the bu bucket which turned into something like a big drum. I had never seen a powerful man <coughs> among the people working as perfectly and vigorously as he did. He drew so much water that the people drank to their satisfaction mm. and watered their camels that knelt down their In this narration then of Abu Huraira, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that he saw himself in a dream upon a well and that he drew out from that well the amount of water that Allah willed. Masha Allah. Then Abu Bakr took that bucket and he drew out a bucket or two buckets worth of the water and there was some weakness in his drawing out of the water. May Allah forgive him. And then Umar he came and then it mentions regarding the strength of Umar and how his power was in taking out that water that he took out so much that the people took it and the animals around there, the camels, they all drunk from it. So this narration talking about this, this vision or this dream regarding this affair that occurred and they were drawing out water from the well himself, the Prophet ﷺ initially, then Abu Bakr, then Umar. And the point of that narration and the story is that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned at the beginning, so I drew out from the well the amount that Allah willed. So, uh, the uh, Shaykh Al-Athameen says that this narration or this vision, this vision was interpreted as the Khilafah, the Khilafah as it occurred. وَهَذِهِ أُوِّلَتْ بِالْخِلَافَةِ وَالضَّعْفِ أَلَّذِي حَصَلَ لِأَبِي بَكَرْ رضي الله عنه زال اللوم عنه بقول النبي صلى الله عليه وَاللَّهُ يَغْفِرُ لَهُ وَهُوَ أَيْضًا ضَعْفُ النِّسْبِ بِنِسْبَ لِمَا حَصَلَ مِنَ عُمَرْ مِنْ عُمَرْ بْنَ خَطَّابِ رضي الله عنه so this dream was interpreted as the Khilafah that ensued after the death of the Prophet There was obviously initially Abu Bakr and it's mentioned in the dream there was some weakness. And then there was Umar ibn Khattab and there was great strength. The weakness that may have occurred during the time of Abu Bakr, what is meant by that here and highlighted is that it was forgiven. There is no issue. Because, wallahu yaghfiru lah. And on top of that, it is only a weakness, relatively speaking. Meaning at the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab, when further advances occurred, there was a great number of lands that were conquered at the time of Umar. More than at the time of Abu Bakr. In that regard, relatively speaking then, there was a greater advancement at the time of Umar than there was at the time of Abu Bakr. And that is all that is meant. Uh, there were other events, of course, that took place 
Sheikh mentions at the time of Abu Bakr, there was the issue of apostasy. There was the issue of apostasy that had to be dealt with. And there was the battle against the apostates at that time. So there were various other uh, issues occurring during the Khilafah of Abu Bakr. Uh, and some of those issues didn't exist at the time of Umar. And further advances were made and more conquerings of lands occurred. And so it's only being mentioned in that relative perspective. <coughs> what was the homework last week? Nobody can remember what the homework on last week. The, the answer we've had so far is I don't think we got one. Huh? Meaning of what? Qirat, or oh, that was one, uh-huh. Anybody? Qirat is just a level of reward. It's a level of reward. In one hadith it mentions that Qirat is equivalent to Mount Uhud. The one who follows the janazah gets a Qirat. The one who buries him gets Qiratan. And then it mentions about Uhud. Uh, Abdul Muttalib. That was two weeks ago and nobody said anything last week. <laughs> Look at that. So who's the answer then? What was the name of Abdul Muttalib? Abdul Muttalib, his name was not actually Abdul Muttalib. So what was his actual name? The grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Shaybah or Shaybatul Hamd. Shaybah, Shaybatul Hamd. Why was he called Abdul Muttalib then? The grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ was actually called Shayba. So why do we know him as and fully recognized as Abdul Muttalib from that time? Why is he known as Abdul Muttalib if his name was actually Shayba? Those who know the answer from the other lesson remain silent. Everybody else. The uncle of the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ, the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ is Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib's uncle, which therefore makes it the Prophet ﷺ's great uncle, he took Abdul Muttalib, his nephew, follow along. So Abdul Muttalib's uncle took Abdul Muttalib when Abdul Muttalib was a young boy. On one occasion they were going uh, on a trade trip and they arrived in some land or they returned. And the people knew Abdul Muttalib's uncle. They didn't know his nephew Abdul Muttalib, Shayba. So when he arrived, they saw this young boy with him, dark in complexion, dusty and everything from traveling in the desert. They thought he was just a slave boy that he, his uncle, had brought along with him just to help him along with everything. So they began to say, this is 
the abd of al-muttalib the uncle they began to say he is abd of al-muttalib he's the slave boy that he's brought along when in reality he was actually the nephew of al-muttalib so that just became imprinted abdul muttalib when in reality he wasn't he was the nephew so that is why they say he became known as abdul muttalib <coughs> the homework for this week is gonna be on that point right there regarding the khilafa an easy homework for this week so we expect a large section of the audience to be able to bring the answers an easy homework for this week we just been talking about the khilafa <coughs> we know the khilafa order abu bakr first and then umar and then uthman and then ali radiyallahu anhum however what are the dates for all of them how many years was abu bakr the Khalifa. How many years was Umar the Khalifa? How many years? Now everybody's silent after first one straight away, two years, huh? Then how many years was Uthman the Khalifa? And how many years was Ali the Khalifa down to the months? As accurate as you can get. How many years was Abu Bakr the Khalifa? After him, how many years was Umar the Khalifa? After him, how many years was Uthman the Khalifa? And after him, how many years was Ali the Khalifa? And what year have we got to by then? That's the homework for this week. That's easy enough. Easy, simple homework for this week. We're going to have to round off slightly early today on that point. But we'll carry on from next week as usual. Remember this week it's the conference in Birmingham. Conference Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. This Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday beginning Monday evening at 6.30pm. Two lectures Monday evening. And then all day full on Tuesday, all day full on Wednesday. Five, six lectures each day. And that's on the topic of the Islamic household. How to raise the children how to develop an Islamic household, the responsibilities of the parents, the responsibilities between the husband and the wife, important topics for the community, important topics for the community and raising of the community and the children, Islamic households, advice of the scholars, rulings. So make an effort for Birmingham Conference this week at the Salafi Masjid on Wright Street, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. We'll come back and carry on with this next week, insha'Allah. Finish off this chapter. Uh, and then after that, the new chapter begins, which is regarding how Allah descends. Descending in the last third of the night. And other forms of the descending that occur. So we'll speak about that chapter next, insha'Allah ta'ala. We'll round off on that for today. Anything to add? Anything else before we finish off then?
During the life of the Prophet وسلم, the companions used to go to him and ask him to make dua for them in terms of the rain prayer and in terms of other affairs. The Prophet وسلم, they would go to him. He was the one who would make the dua for the rain prayer, etc. So they used to go to him for dua like that. After he died, people may say, we can continue going to the Prophet وسلم, and asking him for dua because he is the best of all of the creation as we've just said, best of all the Prophets and Messengers as we've just said. So surely we can go and carry on asking him now just like the Sahaba used to ask him then. So what do you say? So there is proof from the companions that they used to go to him when he was alive, but that they did not used to go to him after he died. And there is the famous hadith about the rain prayer again. There was an incident after the Prophet died on one occasion when a drought occurred again. But this time they didn't go to the Prophet and ask him, to make the dua or to take their dua to Allah, they went to Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet They said, you are blood related to him, close to him, you make the dua for us now. Why did they go to him? If it was permissible to go to the Prophet if it was permissible to go to the Prophet still, even after he's died, then what you're saying is, that the companions decided, forget that, we'll go to somebody else instead. Would the companions have done that? <coughs> if it was allowed for them to go to the Prophet ﷺ, it's as good as you saying, they decided, forget it, we're allowed to go to the Prophet ﷺ, but forget it, we'll go to somebody else instead. Can that be possible? Not a chance. If it was allowed to go to the Prophet ﷺ, they would not have gone to anybody else at all. They would have gone straight to the Prophet So why did they go to somebody else? Because they knew going to the Prophet was no longer an option. That's why they had to go to somebody else. If it was an option to go to the Prophet then you're saying they had the option, but they decided to forget that we'll go to somebody else. Abbas, who wasn't a prophet, who wasn't a messenger, why would they choose that then and leave going to the messenger if it was allowed? Why? Anybody who says to you it's allowed to go to the messenger now and make dua, etc., they have to explain to you why the companions decided, forget that, let's go to somebody else instead. Why would the companions do that? There is only one explanation. Because going to the messenger wasn't a choice. After he died, it wasn't a choice to go and ask him at his grave and make dua to him. That's why they went elsewhere. Otherwise, would they have dared to go elsewhere and leave out the Prophet ﷺ? Not a chance. So that is proof that after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, the companions knew you can't go to him and make dua to him. And that's why they went to others. We'll round off there in that case. Carry on next week, inshallah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi.